to the choir master of David. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright upright shall behold his face. In the opening chapter of his book, A Time for Confidence, Trusting God in a Post-Christian Society, Stephen Nichols recounts the fall of Rome in 410 from the perspective of two individuals. The first is Jerome, who was a brilliant young man who is best known for his Latin translation of the Bible called the Vulgate. When the Visigoths sacked Rome, he thought the end of the world was near. In fear, he fled and spent the last year of his life hiding and dying in a cave in Bethlehem. Jerome wondered what would become of the world without Rome? What would become of Christianity without Rome? Jerome was focused on the circumstances he could see and trusting in Caesar and Rome, his life ended in despair. Augustine witnessed the collapse of Rome as well. At the time, he was the bishop of Hippo in the area of North Africa. Pagans had falsely claimed that the fall of the Rome was the consequence of Christian emperors abolishing pagan worship. But rather than fleeing and hiding, Augustine went to his study to write the book, The City of God. The book describes two groups or cities at odds with one another. The first, the city of God, reflects the church, believers, a heavenly city, the elect, destined to rule the world. The city of man, an earthly and secular city with non-believers and pagans, destined to pass away. And it's important to understand that those two cities were formed by two loves, the city of man by the love of self, the city of God by the love of God. Augustine was not placing his hope in an earthly kingdom, but the kingdom of God as the final and ultimate reality. And like Abraham before him, Augustine was trusting God and looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God, Hebrews 11.10. So the lessons we need to learn is the importance of where we place our trust or our confidence. If we're not intentional about focusing on God, we will drift with our culture and end up trusting in the wrong things that are ultimately untrustworthy. Jerome serves as that warning. The example of Augustine helps me to think of Psalm 11, verse 1, which we'll look at in a moment, but also Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. 
When the late James Montgomery Boyce preached on Psalm 11th at the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia in either the late 1980s or early 1990s, he referenced a great Bible teacher from 1939 who referred to verse 3, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do, as the burning question of the day. Boyce went on to say, but if that is so in 1939, it's a thousand more times true today. Dr. Boyce went on with the following questions of his own. What shall we do when the laws are not upheld, when, mor when morality is undermined and evil sweeps unchecked? What shall we do when the Bible is undermined and its teachings disregarded, when even churchmen seem to support the rising tide of secularism? What shall we do when family values are crumbling and the tide of frequent divorce sweeps forward with increasing damage to children, parents, and society alike? And what can we do when everything around us seems to be giving way? Well, consider how much worse it's gotten since the 30 years that Boyce preached that, even the last two or three years. Today, we see increasing violence in our society, especially in our cities. We see the breakdown of justice with favored groups receiving no punishment at all and political enemies being targeted. We see everything being politicized, the rapid growth in fatherless homes producing disarray in families and chaos and culture and churches that are increasingly worldly and more focused on entertainment than worship. If the foundations are destroyed, what shall the righteous do is clearly a classic question, due both to its timeless, its application throughout history, and its timely as we see our society and culture in decline. John Calvin's favorite verse was Deuteronomy 29.29. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. And only God knows his secret will for our lives and for our society. So we're not going to spend time speculating on what may or may not happen in society. We focus today, like we do every Lord's Day, on what God has revealed to us and our children we don't know the exact historical setting for Psalm 11, but it's okay that we don't know it because it broadly teaches us how to respond in faith when facing any kind of desperate situation. It's helpful to approach this psalm as faith's response to fear's counsel. It shows us how to respond even when the world is collapsing around us and we're tempted to trust in idols or ourselves rather than God. The psalmist expressed that the faithful may have confidence even in times of severe crisis, but God is on his throne, sovereignly ruling this world. He's watching everyone and caring for his people. He will judge the wicked, and he loves righteousness and the righteous. I should give you a heads up. I'm going to spend most of my time on section one, so um, section two and three are much shorter, so just so you're not getting too concerned about that. So anyway, the psalmist opens by confessing his faith. He says, in the Lord I take refuge. They were trying to threaten David with fear so he would do otherwise, but David affirms his trust in the Lord 
even before facing the crisis. And we need to have that same attitude that we have to be firm in our confession because we don't know what unexpected things we're going to encounter, but we have to have that belief that we are going to confess our faith and trust that God is at work in our lives. We can see this in other Psalms too. Psalm 7-1, O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Psalm 18-2, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge. In Psalm 46, verses 1 and 2, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. It was that psalm that inspired Martin Luther to write, A mighty fortress is our God. And he stood for the authority of Scripture and the gospel when the rest of the world was against him at the time he wrote it. Well, who advised David to flee? We don't know. It could have been fearful, well-meaning friends, or it may have been enemies advising him to flee. We know that God has created us with a fight-or-flight response so that when we're faced with a sudden threat, uh, we can immediately react in a way that avoids harm. So there are times when it's the right thing to do to flee. Here's a couple examples from David's life. 1 Samuel 21.10, And David rose and fled from Saul that day and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Or 2 Samuel 15.14, Then David said to all the servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. So on the surface, at least, the advice to flee could be reasonable. The wicked appeared to have the advantage. Everything was going in favor of evil, not good. But in this instance, something else is going on. When it says, flee like a bird, David's being advised to save himself rather than trust in God. And there's people that do that today, right? Their their faith is in Christianity, as Paul Tripp says, not in Christ. And we try and live these principles as opposed to trusting in Christ who's perfectly righteous and took away our sins and fulfilled it. So we need to keep that in mind. Then in verse 2 it says, The wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. So bows and arrows would certainly be familiar imagery. To David, he was a warrior. The image of shooting in the dark is likely to produce more fear, right? I mean, kids, you know that. Things always seem scarier in the dark. It's more difficult to fend yourself against shooters and arrows in the dark as well. And also, it's less likely that the wicked are caught and brought to justice because we can't see them. What's interesting, it's likely that the bows and arrows were physical objects intended to harm or kill the target. But it could be possible that it was a reference to false accusers using their tongues. Psalm 57.4 says... My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down among fi- amid fiery beasts, the children of man, whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Or Psalm 63, 3 and 4. Who wet their tongues like swords, who aim bitter words like arrows. So again, I think it's primarily physical, but certainly today we wouldn't be surprised to imagine both, right? We see people physically assaulted with violence, but we also see people attacked with verbal assault with words. So 
I'll leave it to you guys to figure out which one you think is most relevant. Verse 3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? It does not specifically define foundations. Uh, One possibility is the kingdom conceived as a political entity, an earthly kingdom, including its economy, military, and the like. It could also refer to the moral foundations or the principles of justice within a society. Uh, Dr. Robert Godfrey has some helpful advice on interpreting the Psalms. He suggests that to understand any individual Psalm, you should read the Psalms that precede it, four or five before, and read the Psalms that come after, because the Psalms really are not standalone poems, they are in a context. And Dr. Godfrey suggests that based on Psalms 9 and 10, the one word that recurs in those Psalms about God's foundation is justice. If you look at uh, Psalm 9, verses 4, 7, and 8, verse 4 says, For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. Then in verses 7 and 8, But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. He goes on to say the reason we particularly need justice is because injustice is most frequently inflicted on the weak. And the Psalms also speak about the wicked plotting against the poor. Psalm 10 verse 2, in arrogance, the the wicked hotly pursued the poor. Psalm 10 verse 9, he lurks that he may seize the poor. So we continue to see instances of that day, right? That there are um, people in power that look after their own things. They may state good intentions for helping the poor, but in reality, they're more interested in their own wealth and power. I think I'd like to spend a little time helping us uh, develop a biblical understanding of uh, fear to prepare us for future temptations uh, that we face. Uh, When Walt was reading... uh, the law in Exodus 20, 20, it said, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that that fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. So it can be complicated. Do we fear? Do we not fear? What does that mean? So we already um, have seen that fear was a significant part of David's temptation not to trust God. What I find interesting is that the origin of the fear is the result of failing to trust God failing to obey what he said, and failing to believe that what God God desires for us, his people, is good. So if we go to Genesis 3, verse 10, when God asked Adam, where are you? Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and hid myself. So rather than trusting God... They trusted in themselves and believed a lie, and the world fell into sin. And so that's the first occurrence of fear in the Bible. And so now we've got the irony of the fact that, okay, the temptation here is, do I trust God or do I give in to my fear and try and save myself? What is fear? According to Nelson's new illustrated Bible dictionary, fear, a feeling of reverence, awe, and respect or an unpleasant emotion caused by a sense of danger. Fear may be directed toward God or humankind. 
it may be either healthy or harmful. A healthy fear is reverence or respect. A harmful fear is terror or dread. So there's an illustration from chapter 1 of Jonah that I think shows us both kinds of fear. So we know um, in the opening of Jonah, Jonah disobeys God's call for him to go to Nineveh. And then in verse 4 it says, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. The sailors were questioning Jonah after that, and then in verse 9 he said, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord and the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you have done? So we see those men move from being afraid to exceedingly afraid. And next we see maybe an unexpected move from a harmful fear to a healthy fear. Verse 15. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea, ca- and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So we see the transition from men beginning with a sense of terror to one of reverence and awe and respect for God. And I think that does help us understand the different kinds of fear um, But it leaves the question, how do we think about fear? There are many commandments in the Bible that tell us, do not fear. Have you ever wondered why there's so many of them in Scripture? Well, there are probably many reasons, but God is certainly aware that we're tempted to fear in a fallen world. Michael Horton has some interesting thoughts on fear. His thesis is that the fear of God drives out the fear of everything else. And he also observes that instead of fearing God as the Lord who speaks, we fear the circumstances that we see and put our trust in ourselves and our idols. Well, believers are instructed not to fear human beings because they cannot ultimately harm us. Matthew 10:28 says, "And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul." Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Or Psalm 27, 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? The wicked, on the other hand, pretty much are constantly in fear of people. Proverbs 28, 1. The the wicked flee when no one pursues. Or Matthew 14, 5, Herod wanted to put John the Baptist to death, but he feared the people because they held him out to be a prophet. Romans 3.18 says there is no fear of God before their eyes. The Reformation Study Bible has an interesting note on that verse. It says in the Old Testament, the essence of a proper attitude to God is fear or devout reverence the absence of which is practical atheism. So without that fear of God, we basically ignore who God is and what God said, and we live our lives the way we want to. 
It's why when people evangelize and say everything will be better when you come to Christ, ultimately that is true. But the struggle becomes real then. It's the battle between the flesh and the spirit inside of us. And we see that. Well, it is to our benefit to fear the Lord, to have reverence and awe. Here are a couple of reasons for it. Uh, Psalm 111.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I'm going to quote Michael Horton again. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom because it gives us sanity to see the reality of our condition and our need for Christ. On a practical matter, it's also um, wisdom gives us the ability to navigate the challenges and opportunities that we have living in a fallen world. Isaiah 11.3, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Or Ecclesiastes 12.13, the end of the matter, all that has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the holy duty of man. I think that sort of reflects the, the third use of the law, that as we see the commandments once we're in Christ as ways to please God. So that idea that um, God has revealed his character in his law, and as we follow that, it is pleasing to him to live in that way. But again, that's when we're in Christ, not in an attempt to earn salvation. And then Proverbs 14.26, In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence and his children will have a refuge. I think if we ask the parents in, in this congregation in, um, about their children and grandchildren, we would hear a number of hopes and dreams. But what they hope for most in their children is that they would find refuge in the Lord, that they would possess authentic biblical faith in Christ. And I'll leave you with a helpful summary on the fear of the Lord from Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 and 13. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve him, your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good couple questions. When are you most tempted to trust yourself rather than trusting God? And when are you most tempted to trust what you can see instead of trusting what God has said? So the answer to the question, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do, is found in verses 4 to 6. It's pointing to we should trust God in these verses, we're going to be reminded of things that we know about God that make him trustworthy. Sinclair Ferguson made this helpful observation. How we think about God is the foundation of the Christian life and influences everything we are, say, and do, even though we often do not realize it. So the Lord is in his holy temple. When we think of holiness... For a lot of people, the first thing we think of is purity and righteousness. And that's certainly one of the meanings of holiness. But it's not the primary one when we refer to God. R.C. Sproul, who is well known for his uh, books and um, messages on the holiness of God, says the primary meaning of holiness is apartness or otherness. When we say that God is holy... We call attention to the profound difference between him and all creatures. 
When the Bible speaks of holy objects or holy people or holy time, it refers to the things that have been set apart, consecrated, or made different by the touch of God upon them. James Boyce said, when David looks to the Lord who is in his holy temple, he's looking to the Lord as the moral standard by which the thoughts and intents, words and actions of all men and women will be judged. Again, his law reflects his character. That is the standard. We see it in the world around us. Legalism is the default mode. And if you look at, talk to cultists, the first thing they do is lower the standard of the law and inflate their own performance. It's not going to work. That God is holy. His character is revealed there. And uh, we need to be aware of that. Um, verse 4, the Lord's throne is in heaven. Nine, Psalm 9-7 says, The Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. Or Psalm 103-19, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdoms rule over all. The righteous can trust the Lord who rules from heaven, even if things appear quite a bit shaky here on the earthly scene. And then it says, His eyes see... His eyelids test the children of man. His eyes see meaning that God is omniscient. He sees everything and he knows everything. Proverbs 15.3, the eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. So someone in faith, you can be comforted that God is noticing the small acts of kindness to do. He's watching over all of the details of your life. For the wicked, even though you may hide in the darkness and do things, that doesn't obscure God's being able to see them. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, his eyes never know sleep. He carefully inspects our actions, words, and thoughts. And then uh, verse 5, the Lord tests the righteous. Again, in Exodus, it talked about that. In God's providence, all events are under his control, and he uses those events to test us. Now, I know, being a professor, that people get anxious about tests. So sometimes in the academic world, we use the word assessment rather than test. And it may be helpful to think about God assessing the righteous. The faithful should see their danger as an opportunity to prove that their faith is genuine. We test things, you know, if you're in the, the world of business, you test things before you put them out in the marketplace to, to make sure that they'll, they'll hold up. It's just a reminder, God in his kindness is showing us um, in those tests that our faith is genuine and, and growing us to prepare us for whatever future challenges that he might have for us. Spurgeon thinks the assessment applies both to difficulties and to good times. So he said, men may be drowned in prosperous seas as easily as in rivers of affliction. Then verse 5 goes on to his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. We know that, love, that God hates violence and wickedness, but we also wonder, why does he allow this violence to continue? Why do the wicked prosper? Why do the righteous suffer? We find a partial answer in Acts 14, 16. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. So just as in Romans 1, God gives individuals over to sin, he at times does the same thing with nations. 
He allows the wicked to sin for a time, but judgment will eventually arrive. In Psalm 7:12, it says, God has bent and readied his bow. It's sort of interesting when you think back to verse 2. Here we've got the wicked aiming their bow at the darkness, thinking they're going to strike the righteous, when in reality, it's God that's got his bow aimed at the wicked. And so, in a sense of irony, um, it can seem like the wicked um, are winning at times, but ultimately God is in control and he'll do what his word says. Uh, here's some interesting observations from Proverbs uh, regarding the wicked. And I'm not going to give you the, the verses to save time, but the counsel of the wicked are deceitful. The ways of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord. The Lord is far from the wicked. The Lord has made everything for his purpose, even the wicked, for the day of trouble. The violence of the wicked will sweep them away. The soul of the wicked desires evil. When the wicked rule, the people groan. And when the wicked rise, people hide themselves. And today you can see that, right? There's plenty of signs of the wicked rising and people tending to avoid certain areas um, or at least being more cautious because they're um, concerned about what the wicked may do. Well, justice and wrath are not easy or pleasant topics to address, but they're important to understand, especially when the foundations of justice are being shaken on an earthly level. But unfortunately, even some churches want to deny that God has wrath. Back in 2013, there was a committee putting together a new hymnal for a mainline denomination, and they dropped the popular hymn, In Christ Alone, because the song's authors refused to change a phrase about the wrath of God. The original lyric says, On that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. The committee wanted to substitute the words, the love of God was magnified. It was H. Richard Niebuhr who taught Christian ethics a long time ago at Yale Divinity School that captured the view of too many of those mainline denominations when he said, a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through a Christ without a cross. R.C. Sproul also shares some helpful thoughts. A God who is all love, all grace, all mercy, no sovereignty, no justice, no holiness, and no wrath is an idol. He also said, the most violent expression of God's wrath and justice is seen in the cross. If ever a person had room to complain for injustice, it was Jesus. He was the only innocent person ever to be punished by God. If we stagger at the wrath of God, let us stagger at the cross. Here is where our astonishment should be focused. It goes on in verse 6 to say, Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. And that's a reference to Genesis 19.24 where the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire, from the Lord out of heaven. So when we think about that portion of the cup, we need to consider both a cup of his wrath 
and a cup of his blessing. First, the cup of wrath, Psalm 75, 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours it and he pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Down to the dregs meaning they're going to drink it to the last drop. That's not obviously good news. In James 2.10, it says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So even the smallest sin is a serious offense before a holy God. But James is amplifying that saying, if you break the law in one place, you're guilty of breaking it everywhere. And the implication there is then that the people will drink the wrath for all eternity. But there's also good news in that there's a cup of blessing found in Psalm 23, 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. If you're trusting in the righteousness of Christ, then you can have the assurance that Christ drank the cup of wrath for you, that he paid the penalty for your sin and you received his righteousness. Alistair Begg said, there is no refuge from God, but there is refuge in God. So the wicked will not be able to find refuge from God wherever they try and hide, but it alludes back to verse 1, right? That if you trust in the Lord, you do have refuge. So it's an interesting thing that in Christ, we have that refuge. Outside of it, there is no refuge from God that he will bring justice. A couple questions. What are the Lord's tests revealing about you and your faith? And where do you need to grow in your understanding of God? So we see in verses 1 through 3 that David looked up at the wicked. In verses 4 through 6, um, excuse me, he looked around to the wicked. Then in 4 to 6, he looked up to God. And now in verse 7, he looks ahead to the future and the destiny of all who trust God. The result of trusting God, of seeking refuge in him, is the promise of seeing the heavenly glorified Jesus face to face. It's what the theologians call the beatific vision. And verse 7 means, because the Lord is righteous and loves justice, the upright will see his face. In the Gospel of John, we see that John himself was referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He had the opportunity to see the earthly face of Jesus many times. In 1 John 3.2, which is also written by John, he says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what, will, what we will be has not, yet been, has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. So the promise there, just like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, they saw the earthly resurrected. They didn't get to see him in, well, they've seen him in glory now, but again, that's our hope as uh, disciples on the Emmaus road that we will get to see Jesus in glory. Uh, R.C. Sproul writes a monthly, wrote a monthly column in Table Talk under the byline, Right Now Counts Forever. In the first issue back in May of 1977, he said, this column is designed to focus attention on the relevancy of our present lives to the eternal destinies we all face. 
We live in a culture that places the stress on right now. And he wanted people to get that right now counts forever. So we need a God-centered, eternal perspective to truly make sense of the reality we face and to find satisfactory answers to our deepest questions. The Westminster Shorter Catechism captures that God-centered, eternal perspective in question and answer number one when it asks, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So the contrast, though, between a God-centered, eternal view as a human-centered focus on secularism. And Michael Horton said, for people who have a human-centered, well, he didn't say this part. I'll get to the part he said in a moment. But for people who have a human-centered perspective and embrace secularism, Michael Horton offered the contrasting answer to question one, which is to use God, enjoy ourselves forever. And people don't say that out loud, but unfortunately, many people attempt to live their lives that way. The doctor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, understood this God-centered eternal perspective when he said, the moment a man realizes that he is only a pilgrim in this world, that finally he has to die and to face God, and that there is all eternity before him, his whole outlook on life changes. And as pilgrims ourselves, I pray that we would trust and fear God as we face our temptations, and that believing the gospel, we would live in joyful anticipation of seeing Jesus face to face in heavenly glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give the gift of faith to anyone here not trusting you. Fill us with a greater love for you, one another, and the lost. Help us to trust you when faced with temptations and to trust idols or ourselves rather than you. And as we grow in discipleship, increase our understanding of a biblical view of fear and help us to grow in reverence and awe of you. Give us a God-centered eternal perspective and help us live in anticipation of that joyful day when we will see you face to face in glory, Lord Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.